If you have a Bible, if I could encourage you to turn in your Bible or turn on your Bible, whatever the case is, to Galatians chapter 1. If you're using one of those black Bibles, you can just open that to page 972 and you will be on the right page this morning. <clears throat> we are just a few weeks away from the anniversary of an event that took place 500 years ago. The event itself really was a very simple thing, and yet, although it was a very simple thing, almost overnight, it changed the Western world, and the impact of that still felt today has gone literally around the world and has had an impact literally everywhere in the world. It's been, in fact, suggested by an acclaimed church historian that this simple event really was the trigger that led to the second greatest event in all of history. Now, that may be an audacious claim, but that's the claim that this simple event did that. You say, what's this simple event? Well, the simple event was a monk by the name of Martin Luther hanging literally two pieces of paper on the door of the castle church in Wittenberg, or Wittenberg as it would probably be pronounced. I don't do German at all, but I think that's how you say it. Ninety-five theses, as they're called, and really, if you're wondering what they are, they're not 95 master's theses. It was simply 95 statements, virtually all of them one sentence. And you say, why did he do that? Why did Martin Luther do that? Well, I do want to answer that question, but before we get there, there's actually a parallel question that kind of goes alongside it. I asked you to turn in a Bible to Galatians, and Galatians was a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the people in Galatia, to the churches in what we would call Galatia, which we would call it today modern-day Turkey, so sort of that part of the world. He had started churches there, and now he's writing a letter. And we don't know definitively for sure, but there's a pretty good chance that this Galatians might be the first letter that Paul wrote chronologically that we have in the Bible. It may not be, maybe 1 Thessalonians, but there's a good chance it's Galatians. And you ask the question, why did Paul start writing? Why did he write that letter? Why did Martin Luther do this? Why did Paul write Galatians? Parallel questions. Well, for Luther, the reason behind him putting the 95 Theses was really a twofold thing. You see, he wanted to enter into, he put the stuff on the door there because he wanted to enter into an academic scholarly debate. And that's how you said, I want to have a debate. You put it on there. So why did he do it? He did it for really a twofold reason one was people, and one was the gospel. See, Martin Luther had become convinced that if the gospel gets distorted in some way, that that means people are going to be hurt. And as he looked out both as a professor at the university and also a pastor in another church in the town, he became very concerned that the selling of indulgences in Germany to raise money to build the church in Rome was somehow a distortion of the gospel, and that meant people in his life People that he cared about were being hurt, and that was an issue. Luther was concerned they were being hurt. Why did Paul write Galatians? Well, the reason behind Galatians, quite honestly, is the same twofold reason people 
in the gospel. Paul knew that if the gospel ever gets distorted, if this incredible message of God gets distorted, people are going to be hurt. And through a variety of different ways, Paul had discerned that the distortion of the gospel was taking place in the churches in Galatia. And that meant people that he loved, people that he cared for, people that he had been a part of telling them the story of God were being hurt. And that was not right. That was not good. That should not be. This distortion of the gospel had to be stopped and it had to be corrected. This morning we're starting a new series. As you kind of say, if I had you turn to Galatians, we're starting a new series in the book of Galatians, this letter that Paul wrote. And you might want to know, well, why are we doing a study in Galatians? Why are we going to walk our way through the book of Galatians? Well, this is to use an old phrase, but I realize today I'm getting older. Something hit me. I'm getting old. It's the same twofold reason. It's people and the gospel. We're doing this for the same thing. In terms of the gospel, the letter to Galatian, to the Galatian people, the letter we call Galatians, was one of the key books in the Bible that kind of helped Martin Luther to truly see the gospel, to truly understand the incredible good news that's offered to people in the Lord Jesus. It kind of opened his eyes. And the impact in Martin Luther's life of that gospel literally led to thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands Millions and millions of people being changed and impacted by the story of the gospel. This book really was a watershed of changing things that still has impact literally today. If you were to look at his 95 statements, thesis statement number 62 reads this way. The true treasure of the church is the most holy gospel of the glory and grace of God. That statement is a reminder to us. It was a reminder Martin Luther gave, in essence, to say to the Christian world at that time that the very best thing that we can offer people as a church, the very best thing Central can offer you is the gospel. It is the best thing. It is, in his words, the true treasure. It is the thing. It is the thing we should value above everything now if you combine that understanding of the gospel what he's saying about the gospel with people we realize that from the time of Paul to the time of Luther to today the gospel this true treasure can be distorted and if you take something that's true and you distort it what you end up with is something that's fake it's no longer what it was And so if you take the true treasure and you make it a fake treasure, you're going to produce only hurt and bondage. You will never produce true hope and freedom. The very thing the gospel is meant to offer. As a church, we pray that we do not distort the gospel, that we do not produce hurt and bondage. We want you to know true hope. We want you to know freedom. And part of the reason why we say that is we believe that's what God wants. God wants you to know hope so that in the midst of all of life, you know 
with confidence. I can live life. Because even if the North Koreans do start shooting missiles and they actually hit something, which all these people debate on, but even if they hit something, that's not the end of the world because God's still God. God's still mighty. God's still strong. God's still significant. And not only that, not only do you have hope, but the gospel truly offers each one of us the freedom to actually be who we were created to be. We can have freedom. Instead of living in bondage, instead of living in fear and struggle and all those things, God is desiring us to have freedom. So as a part of, in essence, this 500th anniversary of what's known as the Protestant Reformation, what we want to do is we want to make sure all of us are incredibly clear on the gospel, that we know what it is, so that in a faith response to the Lord Jesus, we can truly receive the hope and the freedom that only God can give, that that can mark our lives, that what changed the world 500 years ago would truly change not just the world, but would change your life, would touch you right in the depth of your being. To get started walking through this book of Galatians, what I'd like to do really to start, because Paul does some funky things, we're going to actually kind of look at two chunks this morning, two chunks that we could make this, we could make this series really, really long, Mike's smiling at me right now. But we're going to look at two chunks, and really, to get through the first chunk, what I, all I want to do is basically ask and answer some questions about this true treasure to make sure we understand what it is, okay? So, four questions out of the heading of, tell me about the treasure. Here's how Paul tells us about it, four questions. Number one, how do you get the true treasure? How do we get this true treasure? The, the true treasure really is the gospel. That's what we're implying, the acronym. They're synonymous terms, Now, the word gospel literally means good news. So that means that the gospel is something that has to be communicated. And if you, like I did in the eighth grade, we studied communications in eighth grade English class, and they told us that for communication to take place, you need a sender and you need a receiver. So if we're going to say, how do you get the good news? Well, we probably need to know who's the sender and who's the receiver. Well, read with me Galatians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, because Paul, I think, kind of goes there. It's how a Greek letter was written. It reads this way, Paul, an apostle, not from man or through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead and all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia. Okay, the end of verse 2, I think, makes it really obvious who are the receivers, who's the recipients. Well, it's the churches of Galatia. And since you and I have a copy of that message, we have that message, then we too are on the receiving end of the message. We're the receivers. Okay, but for us to receive the message, it has to be sent. So who sends the message? Well, it seems like if you read verse 1 that it's sort of pretty obvious in the first part of verse 2. It's got to be Paul and, and the other people with him. He says, and the brothers with me, and like, they're the senders. Well, that's not untrue, but is that the whole story? Because in verse 1, Paul doesn't just say, hey, I'm Paul, which is what you would typically do in a Greek letter. That's how you start a Greek letter. It wouldn't be dear Kevin, it would be Lloyd. I'd say me before I'd ever get there. So he says, Paul. But notice then he also gives us a title. He says, an apostle. 
Now, the reason that's significant is because the word apostle basically means someone sent by an authority. So if Paul's the sender, he's not really the sender because he was sent by somebody to communicate the message. He doesn't come on his own. There's somebody, there's an authority behind him who sent him. Well, who's that authority? Who's the source of the gospel? Well, as you look at the verse, it says, Paul says very clearly, an apostle, but not from man or through man. So there's no human person behind Paul. Paul's not sent, Paul's not delegated by a group to go. Well, who is it then? Who sent Paul? Who's the authority behind Paul? Well, Paul says, through Jesus Christ and God the Father. How do we get the good news? How do we get this true treasure? How do we know about this? We know about this because God said, I'm going to send this. God said, I'm going to communicate this. I'm going to make this known. The gospel starts with God, not with us, with God. One more thing, though, I want to point out in verse 1. I think we need to notice, and you notice how verse 1 ends by saying those words, who raised him from the dead. Okay, in simple terms, that's just telling us that God the Father raised the Lord Jesus from the dead. It's telling us that that's very simple. But it's also telling us that the gospel isn't just a message. It's not just something that's communicated, but it's a message that comes from an historical event. It comes, the gospel is possible. The gospel can be shared. The good news can be shared because Jesus rose from the dead. You see, the gospel in one sense is an event that leads to a message. So how do we get this thing? How do we get the true treasure? We get the true treasure because Jesus Christ rose from the dead. I was picked on in one of the classes at 9 a.m. this morning. That happens when you go into one of the classes, I've noticed. They're going to pick on you. It's this way. The hinge of history. That's the starting point. How do we get the gospel? We get the gospel because Jesus Christ came, died, and rose again. And that's a message then God had Paul sent to share. Question number two, what's the gospel in a nutshell? I mean, if you were to summarize the gospel, kind of boil it down very simply, you know, in a tweet kind of a thing, and a 140-character thing, how would you communicate it? Look at verse 3. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, it might seem, because the words in one sense, the words of verse 3 are what you would expect in a Greek letter at this point. You'd kind of identify who the sender is, who the receiver is, and then you just say something nice. You'd say those are just trite words. Kind of like sometimes, you know, people, you, you meet somebody and you say, how are you doing? And you respond something like, well, pretty good, thanks. It's, it's sort of, we have to say those things so we can actually get onto a conversation. Kind of like they're social filler words. These are not social filler words. You notice how the verse ends. It says, grace and peace to you, what? From God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. See, part of what the gospel is about is if it starts with God, God has something he wants to give us. So what is the gospel in a nutshell? What is it that God wants to give us? 
Well, it seems like he wants to give us two things. He wants to give us grace and peace. So zoom in on the concept of grace for a second. What does grace tell us? What does that communicate to us? What does that mean? Well, in one sense, you could say grace is God being merciful to us. Implicit in the idea of grace is that we are in need. That we're in a situation that we can't get out of on our own. So part of what God gives us is God sees that we're stuck. We're in a place we can't get out of. And so God reaches down and lifts us up. Grace is God touching us in our need to bring us out of something we can't solve. He says, I'll solve for you. I give you grace. I give you help. I get you out of this. That's a part of the gospel. Well, what's peace? Well, the idea of peace really in the, in the Bible, all of the Bible, kind of the Old Testament gets us started for it and the New Testament gives us a better, kind of shows us how it happens, is peace really is about God taking someone and in the context of a relationship with God, bringing his healing wholeness to that person. So what is the gospel in a nutshell? The gospel in a nutshell is God, knowing that we're in a situation we can't solve, reaches down out of his grace and redeems us, rescues us, and then enters into a relationship with us so that we can be whole, so we can be complete, so we can be who God created us to be. In Paul's mind, that's the gospel in a nutshell. Well, question number three, how... How does God give us those things? How does God give grace and peace? How does he do that? How does God make that possible? Look at verse 4. Who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. Okay, Paul says, let me tell you, there's three things that need to happen or three insights, three things for us to grasp that are a part of God giving us grace and peace. This is how God can do it. Number one, how can God give us grace and peace? He can give us grace and peace because the Lord Jesus died for our sins. Okay, we said the gospel started with God. We said that the gospel is so dependent upon the resurrection. It's also tied to the fact that the Lord Jesus died on the cross for our sins. Grace and peace can become a part of our lives because Jesus died for us in our place for our sins on the cross. Second insight. Jesus didn't just die. Okay? He died for a purpose. He died for a reason. And the verse tells us the reason. Jesus died to deliver us from this present evil The the word picture in that is that we are in bondage. He died for us because we were in bondage. We're in that stuck place. And Jesus died so that we could be set free. Jesus died so that we could have freedom. Now as we go through the book of Galatians, this idea of freedom is going to pop up a number of different times. And so kind of to get us started for that, kind of get us used to that coming, I want you to understand that the freedom that is given to us, the freedom is very dependent literally upon Jesus dying, Jesus rising again. Okay, freedom is about because Jesus died, we can be set free. 
we can be the people God intended us to be. Instead of living life in bondage, and, and bondage can show up in a lot of ways, it can be fear. It can be shame. It can be guilt. It can be anger. It can be abuse. It can be people putting pressure on you. It can be all those kinds of things. Bondage in so many ways. And he sets us free. Grace and peace are possible in our lives. God can bring grace and peace to us. Because Jesus died to set us free. Jesus died to release us from this present evil age. The reason the gospel is a true treasure is because of what Jesus offers us. Hope. Freedom. Patrick Henry is quoted as saying on March the 23rd, 1775, give me liberty or give me death. If you want liberty, if you want freedom, please understand it's found in only one place. It is found in the Lord Jesus. It is found in Him dying on the cross for our sins and rising again. And literally, He offers to us that freedom. The gospel is that story. You can be free, but you need to trust Christ. You need to respond to it. But He's offering us. That's how can God give grace and peace? He can do it because Jesus died. Jesus died to give you and me freedom. Third insight out of this verse, just really quick. How can God give this? How can God give grace and peace? Because all of this was according to His will. All of it was according to His plan. He knew this. Part of what that tells us, folks, is that God desires for you to have grace, for you to have peace, for you to have hope, for you to be free. He desires that. He wants that for you. Question number four. How should we respond? I mean, if God's done all of this, he, he, he sent a message that we could receive so that we could have grace and peace, and that's all possible because Jesus died. He died for a purpose to set us free, and that's all possible because God worked to make that happen. How should I respond? What should I do with that? Look at verse 5. To whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Our response should be to worship God. If we recognize this incredible treasure, we see this true treasure, how would you respond? Paul says you worship. Now implicit in that idea of worship there is me recognizing, look what God has offered to me. I'm not wanting to elevate anything else. See, no one, no thing, nothing is better than God. And so what I want to do is I want to trust Him. I want to trust the Lord Jesus. I want to receive all that He has given me. I'm going to worship Him. I'm going to honor Him. Nothing else is as important as God. If I understand the true treasure, that's how I should respond, Paul says. Jumping into sort of the next section, really, because it is a big gear shift. Do I really need to treasure this treasure? Do I need to treasure? I mean, Paul seems to. I mean, verse 5 with him breaking into praise and breaking into worship right there, that's not exactly how a typical Greek letter would be written. If you're going to do some of that stuff, you're supposed to do that later on, not in your introduction. 
But Paul's doing it in his introduction. He's getting all excited about it. Do you and I need to treasure it like that? I mean, in one sense, it's a very practical question. Does my life really need to get as wrapped up in the gospel as Paul's is? Can I just say, hey, it's a nice thing. I don't mind going to church on Sunday mornings. You know, chairs are reasonably comfortable. As long as the pastor doesn't preach too long, I can still get to lunch when I get, get to lunch, so it's all good. Is that how I should respond to this? I mean, is that sort of the level? Or do I need to really treasure it? Well, I want to go back to Martin Luther for a second. If you read about his life, especially his early years as a monk. And he became a monk, and that's a very fascinating story. We can tell that story at some point. But he became a monk in 1705. So from 1705 to, or 17, 1505 to 1517, he really went through an enormous spiritual struggle. See, if you were a monk, you were somebody that was supposed to kind of know how eternal life and freedom and hope, all that stuff worked. You were supposed to be the one people looked to to find out about it. And he struggled with that. Martin Luther served as a monk, and during the time he served, those 12 years he's serving as a monk, in his head, he figured God was an angry or a hateful God that made it incredibly hard for anybody to find freedom, anybody really to receive hope, anyone to have any certainty about their eternal destiny, that God made that really hard. Now, the problem with Martin Luther, if you were one of his bosses, was he didn't keep his struggle quiet. He kept telling people. He, he, he literally figured he just needed to confess his sins constantly. And so after one six-hour confession, the poor boss was just like, what do I do with this guy? He's wearing me out. I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to send him to go do a Ph.D. and assign him a teaching position at a university. That'll solve my problem. I'll just send him off. So that's what they did. So those of you that are wondering, those of, I don't know how many of our college students are here today, but you kind of wonder if how many people teach college because they were struggling with something and were bothering somebody and simply got sent away. Go to your room, so to speak. So what does Martin Luther do? Well, he's assigned in the university to teach Psalms, Romans, and Galatians. And as he's wrestling through how to teach those classes... He starts to understand God isn't an angry, hateful God. And that God really does want us to have freedom. He's starting to, in essence, sort of see the incredibleness of the gospel. And as he's looking at the gospel and he's looking at how church life is taking place and the selling of all these indulgences, he's saying, I think we're distorting the gospel here. That's not good. That's a problem. In a lot of ways, he sounds exactly like the Apostle Paul does in Galatians chapter 1, verse 6. Paul said this, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are returning to a different gospel. From what Paul knew of what was going on in Galatia, he knew the people were not treasuring the treasure. I mean, to be precise, Paul is literally saying, you are quickly deserting God. That's what it says. Okay, so the God who is giving them grace and peace, the God who is providing them true freedom, what did they do? 
They walked away from him. They went away. They said, we're going to go do our own thing. There's an implication here I think we need to understand. It may not be the most comfortable thing for us. If we fail to treasure the treasure, if we don't treasure the gospel, we are deserting the one who calls us, who invites us to the grace of God, the one who offers us freedom and peace, all that stuff. We're walking away from him. We don't treasure the treasure, we're walking away. To go back to one of the prayer requests in the message last week, we said we need to know God. But as a church, if nothing else in essence is true this year, one of the things we must do, we must focus on, is that we know God. There is no way for you and I to know God if we don't treasure the treasure. If we don't treasure the gospel, if we start walking away, we're not going to know God. We need Him. We say, why would someone get distorted? I mean, if God's offering this incredible thing, why would there be a distortion? Well, verse 6 kind of ends by suggesting, hey, it sounds like somebody's trying to offer another gospel. Somebody's saying either there's another gospel or, hey, I've got a better thing. That's kind of okay, but let me tell you, this is really where freedom comes. This is really how life should go. And you say, well, how could someone offering another gospel lead us to distort? Lead us to, not to us to distort, but lead us to desert. Well, verse 7, Paul kind of continues on and he says these words. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Now, Paul's trying to be clear at the beginning of verse 7. There is only one gospel, okay? There is only one way to be delivered from the present evil age. There's only one way for that. In Jesus, Him alone. But just because that's true doesn't mean other people aren't going to try to bring other options, other suggestions. And you kind of look at the end of the verse and it says, you know, who want to distort the gospel of Christ. We need to understand, we need to recognize from the time of Paul forward, there was a lot of things people would do to distort the gospel. It's going to happen. People are going to try to do it. Okay, you can distort the gospel in a lot of different ways. One way you can distort the gospel is by adding things to the gospel. You might say, yes, Jesus needs to die and he needs to rise again. Yeah, we get that and you need to respond to that in faith, trusting him as your savior. Oh, but you need to add all these other things. And part of the challenge of the book of Galatians, what Paul's dealing with is a lot of things were being added. They were adding things. That's one way you can distort the gospel. Another way you can distort the gospel is you can minimize or downplay what Jesus did. You can say, well, he didn't really need to die. It's not all that important. The gospel is just these nice ideas. You can be distorted that way. Paul says there's a lot of distortions. We need to be aware of that. We can get sucked into that. In the middle of the verse, though, it it says something that I think we need to recognize And it seems to say that the distortions may be connected to trouble for us. I think when he says, you know, who want to, some who trouble you, I think what he's trying to say is that there are distorters who are going to look for ways to inject stuff into our minds, kind of bring things towards us when we're at a point in life where we're struggling, 
where a challenge is occurring in our life, when we're having a hard time. Kind of a quick aside. One of the values, one of the benefits of being part of a church, being connected with other followers of the Lord Jesus, like in a small group, is that when you are facing life challenges, you don't face them alone. You can face them with other people around you to help you, to support you. Because here's one of the truths. When life is challenging, when life is hard, you and I can become weak. We can be incredibly vulnerable. One of the things that has been hard over the last now five weeks since my dad passed away is there's a vulnerability I've never noticed in my life because my dad was always there. And now he's not. And that's been an unsettling thing because I thought, you know, I'm 51 years old. I should be beyond this. But I'm not. There's a vulnerability. What do I need? What I need is probably what we all need. We need other followers of Christ to kind of link arms with us for us to be able to say, you know, right now I'm struggling with this. And for them to say, yeah, that's probably tough. You're not facing this alone. I'm going to walk with you down this road. Do we need to treasure the treasure? I honestly believe Paul's telling us in verses 6 and 7, we really need to treasure the treasure. But not only do I need to treasure the treasure, or you need to treasure the treasure, we need to help each other treasure the treasure. Because there's things that are going to come at us that are going to kind of distort us and confuse us. And we need to link arms and go through this together. One of the things about reading some of the commentaries and looking at these verses, verse 6 and 7, it's kind of like, you know, Paul seems like he's being a little harsh or a little hard. I mean, he's pointing the finger at these people pretty strongly. He's coming at them. And, you know, he'd be tempting to say, well, you know, maybe Paul got up on the wrong side of bed. Or I've noticed some of you are a lot nicer after you've had your coffee in the morning than before. Just noticing that. Some of us don't drink coffee, so we don't have an excuse for being cranky, I guess. We're just, I need my water, and then I'll be better or something. I don't know. But we can make all kinds of things saying, well, he's being mean, he's being harsh. You know what? I don't think he's being harsh here at all. Remember at the beginning we said, why did Paul write this letter? Because of people and the gospel. And Paul's concern was the gospel was getting distorted, and that meant they were being hurt. And he didn't want them being hurt. Now here's a question. Is treasuring a big deal? Do I need to take this seriously? Do we as a church really need to be incredibly careful about the gospel? And I think the answer to that question is yes. You see, if Central doesn't get the gospel right, if what we communicate as a church isn't right, and please understand, as one who often is the one standing up and doing a lot of the communicating, before God, I need you to understand, I need to understand, we all need to understand, God takes this incredibly seriously. This is no small matter. Look at verses 8 and 9. 
But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you receive, let him be accursed. Okay, verses 8 and 9 end with the exact same word, accursed. What does that mean? The idea of something accursed means you are putting it under divine destruction. In essence, what Paul is saying is if we play games with the gospel, if we don't take it seriously, if we distort it, if we think that's not a big deal, if we as a church don't communicate the gospel clearly, Paul is saying, God, take us out. That's a pretty strong thing. That's a hugely strong thing. But Paul is saying, if the gospel gets distorted, people get hurt, and God doesn't want people hurt. By nature, I'm a wimp. When hard stuff happens, I'm not a fighter. I'm a runner. And I don't like things that are uncomfortable. I've spent too much and I've looked back on my life and realized there's been too many times something hard's come and I've found the easy way is just get out. I read these verses and part of me is like, these are strong words. This is not pleasant. This is not comfortable. How do I get out of this? I think that's the wrong response. I think running away from these hard words is the wrong response. Martin Luther and Paul were both stirred to write words because they were concerned for people and they were concerned for the gospel. I hope in a similar way we are doing the series through Galatians because of a profound and deepening concern for you and for your soul and for you to know the fullness of the gospel so it's not distorted, so that you and I do not miss out on the freedom we have only in God, only in Christ. So really quickly, what I want to do is suggest to you, although these are hard words and they may not be words that like, hey, I wasn't around, I don't want to be accursed, three implications real quickly, sort of three responses to these verses. So this isn't just a, well, that's strong words, let's go on from there. No, so that these strong words really do some work in our lives that we probably all need. Response number one, how should I respond? Response number one is we need to know the true treasure. Okay. Verse four made a very bold claim to deliver us from this present evil age. And if that's true, if we really can be delivered from this present evil age, if we can be delivered, that's incredible. But we live in a world where there's a lot of options, a lot of different choices. How do you do this? You can have freedom this way, this way, this way, this way, this way, this way. Which one's right? The only way to really know is you got to know the true treasure. You need to dig in, lock in, and you need to know it. There's a reasonable chance that some of you in the room today 
may have, in a sense, be drug here or dragged here. Drug here? Drug here. I'm not sure grammatically which is right. You were forced to come, in a sense. You maybe don't think that highly of God or the gospel, and you're just kind of doing something nice today. Can I challenge you? This application, this response isn't for everybody else in the room. It's also for you. Because if you're saying, I don't need it, I'm going to pursue this other course of freedom, but Paul's saying, the gospel's saying, the Bible's saying, God's saying, this is the only one. Maybe you better check it out. Maybe you better truly know it before you walk away from it. Walking away from what you think is the gospel is a whole lot different from walking away what, knowing what the gospel truly is. Response number two, hold fast to the treasure. We live in a world where there's a lot of cheap imitations and knockoffs about just about everything. About 30 years ago, the man that I worked for went to Nepal and had overnight in Thailand and in Bangkok. And he, he went to one of the knockoff malls there and he brought this watch. And it looked like a Rolex that was thousands of dollars and I think he paid 10. We live in that kind of a world. You can get something that looks good. There's a lot of distortions. How do we protect ourselves against that? We protect ourselves against that by clinging to the real thing, holding fast. Folks, if this truly is the treasure, do not let it go. Don't go, well, I'm going to have one hand here and I'm going to go check something out over here. No. To quote Charles Spurgeon, and I don't get the whole quote, but the quote ends with, and if you can't hang on anymore by your fingertips, hold fast with your eyelashes. Don't let it go. Hold fast. And then the third thing, third response, I think, is this. Let Scripture be your guide and final authority. Simply put, the enemy of our souls is going to put a lot of sources of distraction in front of us. There's a lot of things you and I need to learn from and can learn from. But if we're going to navigate through life in the midst of these different things coming at us, it's like, how do I know where to go to kind of get the authoritative word on this? Where do I go? We go here. Not because it's a book with leather binding, not because it's got a lot of words in it. We go here and we look to Scripture and let it be our authority because these are literally God's words to us. And if God is the source of the gospel, we need to hear His voice we need him. True freedom is only going to be found through God, through Jesus. We need to cling to him, not to other things. We can learn from other things. We need to learn from other things. But the authority we stand on is the Bible because the Bible is God's words to us. They're God's message. May we receive it today. Would you pray?